a sad song, a little song, a little touch of melancholy. I really like sad music. I love those songs that seem to give you all the feels. I am not a particularly emotional person. Maybe that's why it touches my cold, cold heart inside. <laughs> but even at Christmas, I like the sad songs or the songs with a little bit of melancholy in them. Merry Christmas, darling. Have yourself a merry little Christmas, the slow version. I'll be home for Christmas. And one of my absolute favorites, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I did not ask them to play it. Pure coincidence. But O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a hauntingly beautiful plea. It is a lament. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Its origins are in the 12th century, but the song tells the story of the longing that, what, of the longing that Israel felt in what is historically called the exilic and post-exilic period. So if you know your Bible history, Israel and Judah have been destroyed by powerful nations, primarily the Babylonians. And they were forced into exile. And according to the prophets, God allowed or ordained this exile. But it was always designed to be temporary. And you do see an end to the exile. And the Jews are allowed to return home and establish a place of worship in Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple that was destroyed. But one thing that's very different here is that Israel is still ruled by foreign kings and foreign rulers at this time. And these kings do not worship Yahweh, who the people believe is their ultimate king. Yahweh is the ultimate king. Yes, they had earthly kings, but Yahweh was king. And eventually Israel, or the Jews, they're taken over by the Greeks and then the Romans. These are a people that are colonized. They live in diaspora. They are ruled by people who are not particularly sympathetic to them. They suffer persecution to varying degrees. There are uprisings, there are rebellions. There is suffering that happens. And yes, they are allowed to worship God, but God is not allowed to be their ruler. And it's in this time that many sects of the Jewish faith, the belief of the Messiah rises up and takes root. The writings and the scriptures, the law and the prophets of Judaism, people study them. And the study of them becomes a very central part of their faith. They become people of the text. And they believe that, yes, the prophets were writing to their circumstances in the time of the exile, but the prophet's writing is also a foretelling of Yahweh's deliverer, the Messiah, when God will come back, when he will provide a savior, likely a king, that is going to save and rescue his people. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is written by a Christian, but it is written for us to feel for us to commiserate, for us to empathize and to understand the weight of what it means to wait for the Messiah, to hope for restoration, to see God as the only hope for our lives. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. 
This is a time of anticipation. It's the time where we take that pregnant pause as we journey towards celebrating the mystery and the miraculousness of the arrival of Christ. In week one of Advent, we turn our hearts towards hope. The hope that we have realized in the person of Christ and the hope for his eventual return. And hope is a beautiful and yet very strangely tricky thing, isn't it? Hope is powerful, it's strengthening, it's visceral, it's concrete, you feel it deeply, and yet it is also completely intangible. And hope really exists from a place of tension. It is birthed out of tension or conflict. We hope because we believe that something isn't right that things could or should be better or different. We have a desired outcome for something and we're fearful of the alternative, so we hope. Hope can so often come from a place of longing and fear and worry and insecurity. But hope is the counteraction to fear. They are two sides of the same coin. They exist together. We worry that things will stay the same or we worry that things will never change. We worry about things beyond our control, and so we hope. We look to anchor or trust in something. Israel hoped for a Messiah that would restore them. They wanted to see the coming king, the coming Messiah. They believed that he would save them, that he would make things better, that he would make things right. And when I look around the world, I don't know about you. I've been, I can't even be on social media anymore. I look around the world and I see what's going on in the world and I feel like there is nothing I can do but hope. Hope that things can be better and different. Hope that fear and hate will not get the last word. Hope that we can learn to love one another and I hope that God will somehow make things right. I'm going to try to put this down. As we talk about hope this morning, the hope of Christ's coming and the hope that his coming offers to us, I want to look at two passages from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible or you look it up on your smartphone, uh, please feel free to go to Matthew. I am going to have the references on the screen as well. But we are in the Gospel of Matthew. And as a quick preface to this, I want to say a word about the word gospel. Good news. In Greek, it is the term euangelion. It has become an incredibly Christian word. We typically only think about it in a Christian context. But a euangelion was very normal in the Greek or Roman culture. It was just a thing. It was a pronouncement of good news, and it was generally the announcement of the appearance or the ascension of a new ruler. So a euangelion would have gone out anytime there was a new emperor, anytime there's a new king, anytime there's a new Caesar. It is sharing the good news proclamation that there is a new ruler in place. And I have chosen Matthew specifically this morning because more than any other of the gospel writers, he is playing with the idea of what a euangelion truly is, a king and kingdom proclamation. 
And the good news, the gospel of Matthew, it is written by Matthew. We have no reason to believe it's not. And he is a Jew that is writing to other Jews. That is his target audience. And he is announcing to them, a new king has come. King Jesus. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one you have been waiting and hoping for. And Matthew's gospel is designed to show his Jewish brethren that Jesus is the Messiah and what his kingdom looks like. And this is the main point I want to hit home today. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of hope because of who the king is. Matthew's first words in his euangelion, his gospel, Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is building his proclamation of good news around the person of Jesus, who he clearly identifies as the Messiah. He is the savior you have been waiting for. And Matthew immediately follows this with the genealogy of Jesus. And yes, this is our main text for this morning. And I know genealogies can seem a little bit boring sometimes. They're typically the thing we skip over when we're reading our Bible. Let's admit it. But they are so important to the Jewish culture and context in which Jesus is born into. And it's why I want to focus on it this morning. Your genealogy is your family history. It's your legacy. For the Jewish people, it connects you back to Abraham, the patriarch the one that was chosen by God. So it shows that you are a part of his people. It is a way to show your pedigree. You want to make yourself look good in your ancient genealogy. So let's read this genealogy. Matthew 1, verse 1, and we're going to be going to uh, Matthew 1, 6. So I think it, yes, there it is. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I mean, we can just get home, we can go home right now, right? <laughs> that is a hopeful passage. <laughs> Matthew is a Jew writing to his Jewish audience. He wants to trace the line of Jesus through King David, because it is believed the Messiah would come from the line in the house of David. And what Matthew is seemingly trying to do is pointing out the royal messianic worthiness of the line of Jesus. Are you with me? Okay, here's the problem. Matthew writes what might be the worst gene Jewish genealogy, definitely in the Bible, possibly in written records. It is a horrible genealogy for lots of reasons, unfortunately. And I only have time to look at a few this morning. The first one hits hard for me, but this genealogy includes women. In an ancient patriarchal society, you do not mention the women in your family. Because as much as we don't agree with the sentiment as modern readers, who your mother was in the ancient world did not matter near as much as who your father was. 
But Matthew, who does not have to include women in this genealogy, decides to. We see women peppered throughout it, and I only read the first seven verses. Matthew clearly wants to include them, but it's worse than that because the women in this genealogy show the absolute low points of this family story. It shows what would have been seen as deficiencies in the family line. It points out the weak links. It's the points out to the stories that you're like, you know they're there, but you don't want to tell anyone that they're part of your family. That's what's happening here. If we look at verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, did not have to mention Tamar whatsoever. Sad to say, but it does not matter that she is their mother. But look at this. This is not a high point in this family. I know we haven't come to this story in our patriarch series, but Judah is the father-in-law of Tamar, and he does not do right by his daughter-in-law. He does not fulfill his family obligation to you. So she dresses up like a shrine prostitute, and he sleeps with her, and he fathers children from her. So she essentially, she tricks him into doing his duty. If we go to verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab's story is an amazing story of how God rescues his people and and uses the compassion and the shrewdness of a woman to do so. But Rahab is still a Canaanite prostitute. If we continue on in verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's brought into the Jewish line only by marriage. The Moabites were not allowed in the assembly of God for, I think it's 10 generations. It's 10 or 12. But they were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord for, I think, 10 generations. And again, the story of Ruth is beautiful. I'm not saying the story of Ruth isn't great. It's redemptive. We see God at work in amazing ways. It's a fantastic story. But if I'm writing a Jewish genealogy, I'm not including women. I don't have to include. The point of a Jewish genealogy is to show your pedigree, how pure you are in this Jewish faith. You do not include prostitutes and foreigners. But Matthew does. He goes out of his way to mention the parts of the story and the people of the history that we would love to typically try and forget. I mean, in a few verses, he's going to talk about Bathsheba, and he doesn't even give her a name. He says that she is the wife of Uriah. Her story is so shameful, she doesn't get a name, and yet here she is, here she is in the genealogy of the coming Messiah. Matthew is doing this on purpose. He does not have to. Marty Solomon, who is a Jewish Christian scholar, he says this, and I think I have it for the screen. Matthew is purposely going throughout the genealogy and pointing out the women in the story that we would typically like to push out or avoid. They have these dark stories. Matthew is going out of his way to say those dark stories are part of God's story. The people that the world looks down on so often, these are the people of God's story. And this leads into the second reason why I chose the book of Matthew when looking at this idea of hope. And I have talked about this in a previous sermon, so it will be a recap if you heard, I think it was two sermons ago I did this. But Matthew has very clear intentions with his euangelion, his royal proclamation of a new king and a new kingdom. Yes, 
He wants his audience to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and that he is the hope of restoration being realized. But Matthew is also sharing that King Jesus and this new kingdom that he brings, it is not going to be what people think it's going to be. It is an unexpected, expected kingdom. Matthew was trying to convey to his audience that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing does not look like what you thought it was going to look like. And Jesus is the one you are longing for. I'm going to show you how. But he is not going to do things in the way that you are expect, and he's not going to do things in the way that you might be hoping. The kingdom of Jesus is not about power. It is not about might. It is not about overcoming one's enemies. It's not about conquering anyone. It's not about political autonomy. It's not about pedigree or familial glory or riches. That's not what his kingdom is about. It's not about any kind of traditional rulership on this earth. Matthew points out all of the places where Jesus' genealogy isn't pretty and isn't perfect because that is his point. Jesus has come to be part of the human story. He has come to be in the mess. He's come to inhabit the dark places and bring light to them and redeem them. He has come to release shame by being part of what the world deems shameful. Jesus' kingdom is different. Matthew, the tax collector, the Jew who profited from the Roman occupation, he is the quintessential Jewish outsider. But he writes throughout his gospel, this kingdom and this king, it is open and available to any person who wants to participate in what God is doing. Every time you turn the pages in Matthew, you will hear the stories of people who are not supposed to belong finding belonging. You are going to have people that shouldn't have any faith, but they have wild and radical faith. And Jesus says, I have never seen faith like this in all of Israel. The people that the world looks down to, Jesus spends time with them. He hangs out with them. He draws close to them and he calls them blessed. And I think Matthew is saying to his audience, this audience who has been longing and hoping for the Messiah for hundreds of years, they have the vision of what this is going to mean to their lives. I think he is speaking to them, and because the Bible is beautiful and living, he is speaking to us here this morning, listening to these words. And he is saying this, you might think you know what it is to be saved and restored. You might think you know what that looks like but you are likely looking through the lens of earthly kingdom and earthly powers and earthly means, and that is not real hope because that's not what God is doing. All of these things can be taken away. Israel at the time knew that more than most. They had watched their own kingdom fall. They had watched the kingdoms around them, including the Babylonians, fall. They knew that these things could be taken away. And friends, the world is going to try to tell you the things that you should put your hope in, the things that you should put your expectations and desires towards, the things that you should trust in. And don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with hoping for a nice Christmas. There's nothing wrong with hoping that your kids do well in life. There's nothing wrong with hoping that you have good health and you have happiness. Hope is beautiful. It is the 
antidote to cynicism and despair. But please don't put your ultimate hope in the things that can be taken away. Please do not think if I get this, do this, see this, have this outcome, that if this ephemeral thing that's in front of me, if only this happens, then I will be happy. Then I will no longer be afraid. Then I will know that life is secure. That is not real hope. Those are earthly things and every single one of them can fail you and be taken away in a heartbeat. We worship a God who is faithful to his promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. God is faithful to show up even when it doesn't look like how we think it is going to look. Jesus came down into the messiness he was born into dark places and dark circumstances, and he meets us here in that, and he sits and lives in, here, in that with us. Jesus is doing a new thing. He is establishing a kingdom, and he is establishing it with things that are not of this world, and it is not using the ways of this world. And he is establishing a kingdom where any person who wants to participate in the kingdom can, and that is hope. I want to look at a second passage today as we move into closing. And this is not a passage that you usually do when you're going through the Advent season, but when I think of the hope of Christ, when I think of this announcement, this hopeful announcement of the new king and the new kingdom that is being built, this is the first passage that came to my mind. At the very beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry in the book of Matthew, Jesus takes his disciples and they're either with a crowd or potentially partially away from a crowd. The details are a little bit off uh, on that one. But he's about to start his public teaching ministry. And typically a speaker back then when they're starting their ministry, they're trying to give you an overall vision of what their ministry is about. And Jesus presents his disciples and the people around him with a vision of what this new kingdom is going to look like. And here is the vision of the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I hear this word blessed everywhere, and I'm not talking about this passage, I'm talking about our world. Um, you know, got a free Starbucks coffee, hashtag blessed. Um, I make fun, I'm sure I've done it too, I am not, I'm not trying to pick on anyone, I've done it too. And I think it is so good when we can take a look at our lives of abundance and just turn back to God with complete gratitude and know that he, he provides provision and in our case abundant provision. I think that's such a beautiful and necessary thing. The one issue is that that's not what blessed in the Bible actually means. It is not really generally about your physical or your material circumstances. It's about God's favor resting on you. It's about his presence and his favor with you, a calling on your life. Mary is told when she is going to be the mother of Jesus, she said, they say that the angel says to Mary, you have found favor with God. And when she moves in to her poem, The Magnificat, 
She says, right, God has found favor me and all generations shall call me blessed. Blessed is about God's favor sitting on your life. And I've heard sermons on the Beatitudes. That's what we read. The the passage of scripture we read is more commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. And I've heard sermons on them where all of these are things, they're like attributes we need to aspire to. It's a checklist we have to try to achieve. And when we achieve them, we will be blessed. That's the secret to getting God's favor to rest on us. And I do not like this interpretation. One, because it doesn't work for all of the things we read. I do not think we are supposed to seek out mourning, and I do not think we are necessarily supposed to empty ourselves to become poor in spirit. And that's just a few examples of the ones that don't really work. There's a writer named Dallas Willard. He wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. Dallas Willard has passed away. But he wrote that the Beatitudes are not a list of things to aspire to. It's not a checklist to try and reach. It's a pronouncement of God's blessing on all of the people the world thinks are not blessed. The the people that the world thinks are missing out. The people that the world does not really value. God sees those people and he pours out blessing on them and says, my kingdom is going to be made up of people like these. Marty Solomon, I had mentioned him earlier, when talking about this passage in the kingdom of God, he writes this, God's favor rests on all these people that you think God's favor isn't resting on. God is in the middle of the mess, both when you are experiencing the mess and when you are trying to engage with the mess and you feel like it's not working, that is where God is. Marty talks about how if you see, you know, the people who mourn, the people who are poor in spirit, they are in this mess. And then the other group of people that are, are mentioned as blessed, they're the people trying to minister to those people. And this is where we see blessing. When pain and provision meet together, when we're meeting each other's needs as a collective and we're doing it in humble ways, that is what is blessed, and that is what the kingdom of God is meant to look like. One writer said it like this, maybe the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus's lavish blessing on the people around him on that hillside, who in his world, like ours, didn't seem to have much time for. People in pain, people who work for peace instead of profit, people who exercise mercy instead of vengeance, people who could choose to move in power and privilege, but instead they move in meekness and humility. Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the long-awaited promised one, the realization of what his people hope for, the realization of all of the law and the prophets, he could have come like a conquering king. You, you see it in Old Testament scriptures. Messiah could have come like a conquering king. He could have come in power and glory. Goodness knows, euangelions were usually proclamations of that type of kingdom. But Matthew writes about a king who comes from a line of people who are complex and messy and make mistakes. Jesus comes into brokenness. He is born vulnerable in a stable. He's forced to become a refugee. He's raised in poverty and obscurity, where he nor his people have no earthly power. And while he cares about the needs of his people and the people around him, he does not change their economic or political status. He spends time, he calls for, he cares, and he blesses the people of this world who are overlooked 
or who are thought of as outsiders. He values and spends time with people who do not cherish or hold tight to the values that this world says we should value. And Jesus says, these are the people who are going to be building my kingdom with me. These are the people who will participate in the kingdom. And ultimately, instead of being raised up and ascending like kings are supposed to, Jesus lowers himself. He serves. He washes feet. He touches lepers. And ultimately, he dies in a moment of pure sacrifice for the love of other people. And friends, I know his kingdom seems so backwards to the, one, to the world that we live in and to the things the world tells us to do. But that's exactly why this is a kingdom and a king of hope. We've been doing this series on the patriarchs leading up to Advent. And Abraham was called what? He was blessed so that he could be a blessing to others. He was given God's favor and chosen so that he could spread the blessing of God to the people in the world around him. Jesus is the realization of this blessing, and he shows us how we can live so we can pass that along to other people. Jesus is the hope of the world, and he is building a kingdom of hope, and he is inviting and calling people who want to be part of this kingdom to minister and to spread God's blessing on those around us, to find his presence and the hope in him. As we move forward in our Advent journey beyond this week, we are going to be talking about joy and peace and love, and these are the tenets. This is what the kingdom of God is built upon. This is what the king brings. This is the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. As we move into closing, I am going to pray. I am borrowing a prayer from a gentleman named Walter Brueggemann, who is a writer that I like, but if you will bow, I'm going to read this prayer for us. In our secret yearnings, we wait, O God, for your coming. And in our grinding despair, we sometimes doubt that you will. And in this privileged place, we are surrounded by witnesses who yearn for you more than we do, and by those who despair more deeply than we do. Look upon your church, O God, and its people in this season of hope, which runs so quickly to fatigue, and this season of yearning, which can become so easily quarrelsome. Give us the grace and the impatience to wait for your coming to the bottom of our toes and to the edge of our fingertips. Come in your power and come in all of your weakness and in any case, come and make things new. Amen.